0: This audio is from the Axis Church and is part of our sermon series, The Reason We're Here, a study of the book of Acts. For more information, go to theaxischurch.org. Before we jump into Acts 10, I have a question for all of us this morning. Do we have any polo fans in the house? not Ralph Lauren polo. <laughs> I'm talking about the sport, horses, and dudes riding the horses and swinging mallets and hitting whatever they call the thing that they're hitting. Any pol- now that I've clarified, any polo fans? And in- still nobody after, after the clarification. Well, did you guys know that professional polo exists in the United States? Anybody? Like, People get paid to play polo and people pay to come watch the people getting paid to play polo, professional polo. I didn't know this existed until this week. I was perusing YouTube as I often do and I stumbled across a video of, uh, I guess, just the scene that's just following a polo match that had taken place. I had no idea what was going on. The match had ended. One of the players was coming out onto the field. He wasn't riding the horse anymore. I'm not sure why, but he, so he's by himself. He's dirty from the match, and uh, there is a huge crowd of people that are being held back by a stanchion. And this guy is spraying everybody with bottles of champagne, and the people are going nuts like teenage girls at a Bieber concert. <laughs> In sync? <laughs> Menudo, whatever your flavor is, people were excited. I don't understand polo. I had no idea what had happened in the match. If that's what you call it, that's my guess. I can't name a single polo player. I had no idea who this guy was or why he was spraying people with champagne or why people were so excited about being sprayed by him with champagne. My point is (laughs) due to my lack of understanding, contextual understanding, if you will, the gravity, the emotion of the experience was lost completely on me and it just seemed rather strange. I had almost no context for what was taking place, so I was witnessing it happening, but I wasn't experiencing it. I wasn't feeling the emotion of what was taking place. My point is, context is vital for us as Christians in our efforts to interpret and apply God's word to our lives. So what I want to do before we jump in is try to quickly lay some contextual groundwork so that we don't just witness this history unfold. In Acts 10, but we actually feel and experience it. When we read Acts 10, a few thousand years, a few thousand miles removed from what's taking place historically, it's almost impossible for us, non Jews, those of us in the room who are not Jewish, to comprehend the cosmic significance of what's taking place. So I want us to together give it our best effort to step into the historical and theological context of what's taking place so that we can interpret and apply God's word correctly. Last week, we spent time unpacking Acts chapter 9, where Jesus, through Peter, performs two miraculous healings on two Christians as Peter is on a preaching pastoral tour uh, to the, the, the cities that are surrounding Jerusalem, the Christians there, the Jewish Christians. These communities were made up primarily of those people who had fled Jerusalem in order to avoid the persecution that was taking place there. Luke, our author, the author of Acts, ended chapter 9 last week with verse 43, and he provides us with a hinge text where he mentioned that Peter was staying in the house of a tanner. What we have here is some crafty journalistic foreshadowing by our author Luke to prime our hearts for what's coming next today in Acts 10. Tanners, this was a profession, this was a job. They were in the eyes of the Jews, unclean people. Their entire livelihood was based on the selling of animal skins, which required coming in contact with dead animals, which was a huge no, no for the Jewish people. According to the Jews, a tanner's job was unclean. Therefore, the tanner was unclean. Therefore, his house and everything in the house was unclean. Pre Jesus saving Peter. The Jew Peter would not in a million years have been caught dead spending time in a tanner's home. And we're not given any real insight into why Peter ended up in this tanner's house. But I think what's happening perhaps is God is priming Peter's heart for the bomb that he was about to drop in the middle of Peter's entire theology and worldview about who God was and his plan of redemption in Acts 10. Acts 10 is one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament because it displays a crucial moment as God's redemptive plan in history unfolds, specifically related to the fact that we, non-Jews, have been offered hope through the Messiah, Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul describes what we're about to see in Acts 10 as The mystery, hidden for ages and for generations, but that now has been revealed to his saints. Jumping into Acts 10, turn there if you'd like to in your Bible or on your device. The first two verses in Acts, Luke is introducing us to a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a high-ranking military captain in the Roman army. Luke describes him as a man who feared God. Several years ago, I was a little more active uh, in the social media world than I am today. And I posted a Bible verse on Facebook, Proverbs 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it wasn't until then that I realized that this concept of a God who would ask people to fear him is highly offensive to many non-Christians. So there was a a comment and a dialogue that happened per that post where a non Christian acquaintance uh, was ver- verbally very offended that I would believe that God wanted anyone to fear him. Fundamentally, when we come across this concept of fearing God in the New Testament, the word is phabeo. Fabeo, root word for phobia. And the definition is important, words are important, is to be seized, so captured, consumed, overwhelmed, with reverence for an awesome or terrifying thing. What a great way to describe God, an awesome and terrifying one. Most of us have experienced a similar type of emotion. Um when we have experienced something majestic in nature, in God's creation, something that completely captures all of your attention and your emotion. And it simultaneously takes your breath away, perhaps gives you goosebumps, because it is so beautiful and so vast, but at the same time, it demands reverence and respect because it is so hard to comprehend what you're looking at. Fear because it is so uncontrollable and beyond you. Maven evoke senses of terror simultaneously with awe and enjoyment. Some would say the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or the redwoods of the Sequoia National Park in California or the black sand beaches of Hawaii. For me, it's the solar system. It's the night sky if you can go there for a moment, if you have a memory that's coming up as I describe this, whatever that experience was like for you, whatever evoked those emotions of awestruck but fear, there's a reason that it's called God's creation, right? Because He created it. And Jesus, according to the Scriptures, is holding that very thing, whatever it is in your mind that blew you away, Jesus is holding that very thing together with the word of his power right now. And in addition, creation bows to his will. Creation obeys his voice. Who is this then that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is Jesus, our Savior. We are to revere him because he is an awesome and terrifying one, depending on how you approach him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So Cornelius was off to a good start, as we'll see. Cornelius feared God, and the way Luke describes him indicates that he was a part of this unique ethnic religious demographic because he was a Gentile. So he was a pagan. He was a non-Jew who had embraced the beliefs of the Jewish people and did not worship the lowercase g gods or goddesses of the Roman Empire. So Cornelius was doing his best to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. Look at verse 3 and 4. About the ninth hour of the day, this is an hour of prayer, Cornelius saw clearly, clearly is important. There was no mistake about what he was seeing or experiencing in a vision. An angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at the angel with terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So God sends a messenger angel to Cornelius to say that his prayers and his alms, which is a word for generous gifts, have been heard and were somehow pleasing to God. Now, this is interesting because there's a group of people called the Pharisees, and they were the, the leaders of the Jewish religion. And according to the Jews, they were the most accomplished and applauded and acclaimed prayers and alms givers in the history of the Jewish people. Prayers and almsgiving were two things commanded by God for the Jewish people to follow. But we see Jesus on multiple occasions in his ministry publicly rebuking the Pharisees for their prayers and their almsgiving. And this wasn't because they were performing these religious activities the wrong way. His rebuking of their performance was entirely based on their hearts that were motivating their religious activity. He said that they had hearts that hungered to be revered. They wanted to be revered. They wanted to be applauded. They wanted to be approved and admired for their religious performance. But the words of the angel to Cornelius indicate that the heart of Cornelius that was motivating his prayers and almsgiving was not like the heart of the Pharisees. It was a sincere heart that was in some way based on his limited understanding of God being motivated as a response to God's goodness and not to get others' attention or to earn recognition from God. Therefore, his alms and prayers were pleasing to God. The words of this angel must have been like water to a... The dry soul of Cornelius. So encouraging. Because of who he was and what he believed about God, he was now not fully accepted by his own culture and was still considered to be not good enough, even unclean in the eyes of the Jewish people whose God he was doing his best to worship. The angel continues in verses five through eight to deliver very specific details to Cornelius. Send him to Joppa. Find a guy named Peter. He's staying with the tanner. He lives by the sea. So Cornelius sends two servants and a soldier to Joppa. God is orchestrating every detail of this event. His plans are always unfolding perfectly here in this historical event and here in this room this morning. Maybe there's somebody new here today. And you, if you're honest, are shocked. That you're sitting in a church gathering this morning. It could be because you think church is a waste of time and it's full of hypocrites. Partly true. You may uh, have experienced abuse or being burned or being hurt by people at a church or by church leadership. (laughs) Or you may just think that what we believe as Christians is just nuts that it's not very intelligent. (laughs) And so here's what I would say to you. First, so glad you're here. I hope that you come back. Uh, This is a safe place to disagree and to figure things out. Second, I would agree with you that what we believe as Christians sounds nuts. It sounds nuts to me, (laughs) but it's true. So if that described you in any way this morning, I would ask you to consider the seemingly random series of events that domino affected you into the room this morning. And what if, just humor me for a second, what if the events were not random? What if God is pursuing you right now? Believe it or not, the way that we're gonna see him pursuing Cornelius in the rest of Acts 10. I pray that that's the case. Crazier things have happened. Let's go back to Peter. The, the following day, Peter's praying on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house and he falls into a trance. It gets weird here. Let's go. Verse 11. And he saw the heavens opened in something like a, something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter is rightfully shocked by what he sees and hears. The Jews had always been the chosen people of God, and God had given the Jewish people laws and commandments to follow in order for them to be ceremonially clean enough to rightfully worship Him and to set them apart from all the other nations to make them a reflection of His purity. God gave the Jewish people a long list of dietary laws in Leviticus 11. Things to eat and things to stay away from. Here Peter sees something that looks like a great sheet being held by its four corners, so it's weighted down in the middle, and it is essentially filled with every animal that's on the list of the animals not to eat or to even touch in Leviticus 11. Peter had been a Jew from birth and had never broken the Jewish dietary laws. This would have been an area of great uh, pride for him. Keeping these laws had been vital to the Old Testament Jew. If you've ever encountered the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3 or Daniel being thrown into the lion's den in Daniel 6, both of these things took place because these men refused to worship a king and they refused to eat the king's food that were against the dietary laws that God had provided. So they were willing to give their lives in order to obey God. In Peter's vision, God speaks from the heavens and seemingly out of nowhere abolishes centuries of dietary laws and legal requirements. And this may not seem like a big deal to us, but to a Jew in that day, it would have been impossible to comprehend. What's God up to? Let's see. Verse 15, God responds to Peter's rebuttal. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, that's a very important word in the context of what's happening. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. This happened three times. This was in order for for Peter to not miss that this was the authoritative verse of the Lord and, and that what he was saying was very important. And the thing, whatever it was, filled with dirty animals was taken up at once to heaven. Massive understatement probably here. Verse 17, Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Perplexed indeed. Let's consider before we move forward these words from Jesus found in Mark 7 verses 18 through 20. And remember that Peter is present as Jesus is speaking here. And Peter heard these words as well. Uh, there's a debate about foods about cleanliness. And Jesus says, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, cannot make him unclean, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. This is the parentheses, this is in the scriptures, this is Mark giving us commentary, explaining what the heck Jesus is talking about. Thus he declared all foods unclean. That's what Jesus is doing. And Jesus said what comes out of a person, what comes out of a person's heart is what defiles him, is what makes him unclean. Jesus came and inaugurated a new kingdom, a new covenant where acceptableness before God was based on the condition of the human heart changed by grace and faith in Jesus, not the ceremonial cleanliness of the outward physical appearance that's achieved through religious performance. So let's look at verse 18. Uh, Peter's perplexed, to say the least. He still has no idea what's happening, and he's on the roof trying to figure out what in the world is going on with what he's seeing and what he's just heard and experienced. At the end of verse 19, the Spirit says this. This is the voice of God. Behold, behold three men are looking for you rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation (laughs) was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Verse 23, all the way to 29 here. The next day, Peter rose. He went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa, these are uh, Christian disciples in Joppa, accompanied Peter. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and friends. Beautiful picture of community. When Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in (laughs) and there's a crowd of people waiting on him. Many persons gathered and he said to them, just so everybody knows how, how much I'm usually not supposed to be here, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So the puzzle pieces are starting to fall together for Peter, but they're, they're not completely there. 29. So when I was sent for, <laughs> I came without objection. I asked then, why would you send for me? Peter's audience is well enough informed about the laws and cultural restraints of Judaism to recognize the strangeness, the cultural faux pas happening in this occasion. Peter is still confused about why he's there, so he asked Cornelius why he had sent for him. And so in verses 30 through 33, Cornelius unpacks the vision and what the angel had said for him. And in verse 33, Cornelius says, so the angel came, he said all this stuff to me, I sent for you and I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. What a remarkable confession of humility from Cornelius. He was a man of great power. He was in charge of upwards of 100 soldiers in the most powerful and feared army that had ever existed in the world to this point. And he, as a centurion, was accustomed to people coming into his presence and him giving commands and them obeying. But here, with great expectation and excitement, he invites Peter to deliver what Peter had been commanded by the Lord. We're witnessing God's plan of redemption in history unfolding perfectly through Peter's reluctant obedience and God's pursuit of the heart of Cornelius and his friends and family. And finally, in verse 34, Peter begins to understand what God is doing. Check it out. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality or no favoritism, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him, is right and acceptable to him. This is shocking (laughs) because for hundreds and hundreds of years, God had most certainly been showing partiality and favoritism. He chose the Jewish people. He called them the apple of his eye, his favorite ones. See, Peter's vision was not primarily about what kinds of food to eat. It was about people. And what God was communicating through Peter's vision was that all people formerly labeled as unclean were now being pursued by God and invited to become his people. This is crazy. And Peter is finally understanding. This is the mystery that we touched on just a little bit at the beginning that Paul mentions in Colossians 1. He writes more here. Let's look, Colossians 1, 26 through 28. The mystery hidden for ages and for generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, among the formerly unclean, among the pagans, among... The non-Jews, here's the mystery, Christ in you. And what this signifies is salvation, is redemption, is being restored into relationship with God and becoming a child of God. This is the mystery, Christ in you. Gentiles and non-Jews, the hope of glory. Everyone present here in this story was certain of one thing, including Peter. Peter. God had brought them together, and they're now all waiting with eager expectation to hear the Lord's message from Peter. And Peter had a message for them, a capital M message, the gospel of Jesus. Look at this, 36 through 43. What a beautiful, amazing presentation this is. As for the word that he sent to Israel, God preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened. This was history. This was not that long ago. You heard about it. You saw some of it throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism of Jesus that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with his Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses. We saw it. All that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death. The Messiah. By hanging him on a tree. This is the cross. The Roman choice of execution. But God. Usually when you see but God in the scriptures, something good is coming after that. 40. But God raised him. Jesus from the death on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. And we didn't just see him. We ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. (laughs) And he commanded us, Jesus did, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged of the living and the dead. Listen to this interpretation of the Old Testament prophets here that Cornelius was well aware of. To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness. They're pointing to him. It's all about him. God's redemptive plan to save a people for his own possession has been unfolding until now, and it's all through Jesus. He is the one. All the prophets bear witness that everyone, Formerly unclean, non-Jews, filthiest of sinners, drug addicts, porn addicts, prostitutes, whatever. List it out. Everyone who works hard enough, who climbs the religious ladder, who gives enough alms and prayers. No, that's not what it says. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is our greatest need. We can't do it on our own. We need to be cleaned. And Jesus came to do that. Peter is saying, Cornelius, the God who you have been watching from afar, doing your best to worship, has done all of this for you, and his promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. And everyone everywhere who believes in this message, including you and your family, will receive eternal forgiveness and will become children of God. Doesn't this sound wonderful? It's the gospel. This promise is for you as well today, if you have not believed it yet. The gospel is the formerly unclean because of sin, being made eternally clean through faith in Jesus. What's taking place here had been prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's what Paul the Apostle mentions in Romans 9:25 through26. If you're a Christian, this is describing you and how beautiful it is. Uh, Paul is quoting Hosea chapter 1 and 2. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, non-Jews, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, he uses the, the word her here because God's love for us is a romantic love, even if that makes you uncomfortable, it's true her who is not beloved i will call beloved and in the very place where it was said to them you are not my people there those people yes those people they will be called sons of the living god the best news human ears could ever hear here peter is preaching the fullness of the gospel of jesus christ which was absolutely necessary for the salvation of cornelius And one point of application for us to pull from this reality is that good people, notice the quotes, because Romans tells us that there are none that are good, not even one except Jesus. Good people who believe in God still need Jesus. Cornelius was a spiritual and God-fearing person long before he came to know Christ. This was not enough to earn his salvation. Sadly, this year one of the greatest athletes the world has ever known passed away, Muhammad Ali. I was a big fan. My dad was a boxer in the Navy. We used to watch boxing together and I have memorable moments where my dad would just tell me about seeing interviews of Muhammad Ali or watching his fights. Uh, He was remembered by many for his braggadocious persona, his incredible athletic ability his devout Muslim faith, and also his humanitarian work and generosity. In 1977, Muhammad Ali recorded a TV interview in England that has become one of his most well-known interviews where he provides an inspiring speech at the end of his career based on his views of the meaning of life. And I've seen the video a few times. I saw it this last week. And um, his words are heartbreaking in light of what I know to be true about Jesus in the gospel. He's talking about what he's going to do with the rest of his life after he's done with boxing, and he said this. I'm going to dedicate my life to helping charities. That's great. That's good. To helping people, yes. Uniting people, amen. Listen to the motivation. So when I die, if there's a heaven, I want to see it. He believed in God. He even believed in a heaven and a hell. But just like the God-fearing Cornelius, belief in God and dedication to charity and helping people is not enough to get you into heaven. Our greatest problems of sin and separation from God must be dealt with by Jesus or we have no hope. There are no prayers loud enough, no alms generous enough, no ladders of charity work or religious performance high enough for us to span the uncrossable chasm between us and peace and relationship with our Creator God caused by our sin. Jesus bridged the gap for us. He is the bridge. He is the way. He is the path to restored relationship with God, to being clean, because your sins are forgiven, and eternal life as a result in heaven with God, where we were all created to be, and where we're all longing to be right now. We know something just isn't right. It's sin. Jesus is the answer, and we're longing to be with him in heaven. In the beautiful gospel presentation Peter gives us, there is there are so many fundamental elements of the doctrine of the gospel that I wish we had more time to unpack. But I want us to t- take a look at verse 38, where he emphasizes the anointing and empowering of Jesus by God. And this is a significant thing because this anointing and empowering of Jesus, one of the times made manifest at the baptism of Jesus, were ways in which God was visibly and tangibly confirming the identity of Jesus. And the work of Jesus is irrelevant if you get the identity of Jesus wrong. In verse 26, remember Cornelius bows before Peter to worship him, and Peter refuses to take any worship from God who deserves it. And we see this happen in the scriptures with Paul and even with angels where people fall and try to worship them and where they do all they can to make them stand back up and, and point them to the one who deserves to be worshipped. But this happened to Jesus a lot as well. But let's consider how he responded when people encountered him and wept or fell at his feet or anointed him or cried out things like, God, save us or behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He didn't say, no, 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 no. He received their worship because of who he is. Jesus was not just a really good moral man or an excellent teacher or a prophet among prophets. Jesus was, is, and forever will be the sent one, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, God in human flesh, Emmanuel, sent to dwell among us and rescue us and make us clean. Consider two Chunks of Scripture about the identity of Jesus. And if you've heard this a hundred times like I have, I pray that the Spirit would (laughs) snap our hearts to life and help us feel the epicness of who Jesus is. Colossians 1, this is a paraphrase of of the chapter. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You see Jesus, you're seeing God. You experience Jesus, you're experiencing God. God. You walk with Jesus, you're walking with God. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, through him and for him. And Jesus is before all things, meaning eternal, omniscient. And in him, all things hold together. For in Jesus, all the fullness, all of it, every ounce of the character of God and God himself was pleased to dwell in and through Jesus, making peace which is what we need. Without being clean, there is no peace. There's wrath. Making peace by the blood of His cross, that tree. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3. God has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus, through whom also He created the world. <laughs> Our... Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is not a fairy tale. This is Jesus. He is alive and he is king and he is awesome. And he loves you. Knowing the identity of Jesus, especially when we sin, is vital to our spiritual health because the identity of Jesus has become yours as if you had achieved it yourself through faith in Him, Christ follower. As Christ followers, we still struggle. Life is hard. We struggle with sin and doubt and failures and insecurities and in these moments, is oftentimes when the subtle whispering of our enemy, Satan, comes in. In Revelation 12, Satan is called the great accuser of God's children. When we sin, Satan loves to accuse us of being unclean, unloved, unfit, unaccepted, rejected by God. Oftentimes to me, he says something like this. Look at what you've done. You have messed it up this time. Again? That sin again, can't you get it together? You might as well go off the deep end and just sin more because God is already really mad at you. And he's expecting you to clean yourself up and to stop that sin before you come to church again or go to him to prayer or whatever it may be. How could God love you? You are so dirty. If this sounds familiar at all to you, may the spirit of God help us more (laughs) poignantly and quickly recognize the lying voice of the enemy. And would we as a community learn to fight and train ourselves to remember and proclaim what God commanded Peter in Acts 10, 15, what God has made clean, you Christ follower, let no one call unclean including Satan himself. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. With Jesus, Christ's follower. Do you know how much you've sinned this morning? It's it's true, I don't feel it either. (laughs) If we felt the gravity of it, it might crush us. In light of our sin, God the Father speaks the same to you, Christ follower, that he spoke about Jesus at the baptism of Jesus that Peter refers to in verse 37, where he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Even in your sin, even in my sin, the father sees you and says, beloved daughter, beloved son, I'm so pleased with you not because of your prayers and your alms or whatever it may be, but because of Jesus. And through faith in Jesus, you look just like Jesus. As we transition into a time of communion and we take broken pieces of bread to remember the body of Christ, whenever you think about the body of Christ, think about the life of Christ and think about Christ as your representative. We all messed it up. Sin disqualified us. We needed someone to make it right. We needed a representative, a perfect one, a sinless one. This is why Jesus came. And we dip the bread and the wine or the juice and we remember the blood of Jesus on that tree, on that cross. Let's think of the word substitute. We needed a perfect life, but we also needed someone to take our punishment because God is a just God and he can't simply overlook some of your sin or punish the big stuff and bypass the little stuff. To remain just, he must punish all sin. And this is what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was standing between you and God. The propitiation is the word, the wrath absorber, so that you could escape the wrath, receive his perfect life and be loved and forgiven and made clean. And as we take communion, let's remember the promise of Jesus to his disciples as he instituted communion, where he said, I will not eat this meal again with you until I share it with you in my father's kingdom anew, pointing to the fact that he was alive, that he was preparing a place for us in heaven. And so when we take this meal, remember that you're clean. And would God shut the lying mouth of the enemy? And would we believe that we are forgiven? And would we be able to say, Jesus we can't wait to see you. Amen? Amen. Uh, We'll have stations uh, on either side of the stage and in the back, servers in the front, just elements in the back. So please take your time, pray, and let me pray that God will do work in our hearts and um, we'll celebrate communion together. Let's pray. Father, thank You that you, <laughs> Your plan of redemption includes non-Jews. <laughs> None of us would be here if it didn't. It's hard to believe that when we sin, You see us as clean. And so, through the communion, as we remember Christ our representative, Christ our substitute, Christ our victory over death, would You encourage the weary hearts of Your children Would you help us believe that we're clean? And would this motivate sincere obedience and a love for others and a desire to take this good news to our neighbors? Be with us for our spiritual health, for our joy, for your glory, for the fame of Jesus in our hearts and in this city. In Christ's name, amen? Amen.